0: So Ecclesiastes 5 from verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. "'And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. "'As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. "'Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. "'This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. "'And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind?' Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many... But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man who, uh, what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind.
1: Well, am I on? Is this going to work? Let's just roll. It's working. Great. I'll just use my big boy voice. Um, good to have you here this afternoon. Um, my name is Gav, we haven't met, we're going to jump straight into the book of Ecclesiastes, let me pray, we'll get going God we want to thank you so much that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you love us, uh, that you speak to us I want to pray now as we come to your word that, um, that you, you would just speak, that I would get out of the way and, and I would just be faithful to, to what you put on um, my heart to say and what you've said through your word and that we would just hear you and engage with you and see that Jesus is more than enough for us and that we will be content in him the Lord, teach us today, be present here, and thank you that you love us so much. Amen. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not really a tech-savvy guy at all. Um, I didn't grow up with computers on the internet. Shows my age, doesn't it? Um, I had a Commodore 64. Anyone know what that is? Look, everyone's going, what are you talking about, man? Anyway, I had it. Thank you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Floppy disk, and you had to write L-O-A-D on it. And Anyway, it was... Uh, and then I had a Sega Mega Drive... Um, which is a bit more. That was sort of the extent of my tech knowledge, and so I'm not a computer guy at all. And uh, it ran in my family. My mum had no idea about technology, although she did love playing my Game Boy, especially Tetris. That was weird. Anyway, that's another story, right? Anyway, um, uh, yeah, she had no idea. One day, she was at home, and I remember uh, I was uh, in year six. My um, I have I have two older siblings a brother and a sister, my sister was in year 12 when I was in year 6, and my sister was sitting a, um, a really important maths exam at school. Mum was cleaning up at home, and so she uh, looked on the coffee table, and she, and she thought she found a calculator. I thought, oh, you know, Kelly's got an exam, I should rush this to school, because she's forgotten it. Drives up to school, she's on her way up to school, driving up there, looks at her, this calculator and tries to figure out how to turn it on, couldn't find an on-off switch, so that's a bit weird. Anyway, keeps driving after the school. Then she thinks, you know, oh, I'll try and find, you know, where the numbers come up, the display on the front. Tries to find that, couldn't find that. That's when she realized she was actually ho- holding the stereo remote, remote control rather than, the, rather than the calculator. Imagine walking in saying, honey, here's your calculator. It was just like a remote control. Imagine the embarrassment of my sister at that moment. Um, but we all, we all get confused from time to time, don't we? Like my mum, our life is confusing. Uh, we can often take uh, something and misuse it. Or, uh, or, or use it in a way that it's not made for or made to do. You know, we live, and I don't need to tell you this, we live, live in a world that is full of gifts, so many great gifts from our great God. We have friends and family and job and health and money and career and a place to live and access to food and services and education and so many blessings in our life uh, day by day. So many gifts to be enjoyed, uh, so many gifts to be taken advantage of and pursued in this world. But often, and this is where the confusion jumps in, we don't really know how to engage in those gifts properly. We don't know how to engage them and use them without them consuming us. Often what we do is, and this is what I do, we take these good gifts and we use them in a way they're not meant to be used. You know, The simple one is to think about relationships and sex. We take it and we abuse it, or drugs, or alcohol, whatever it is. We take these good gifts, and we, we, we don't use them as they were meant for. And often what we do is we turn these gifts that we have from God to be enjoyed, we turn them into gods. And we worship them. We turn it from gifts to gods. What does that mean? What does that look like, turning something from a gift to a god? Well, there's one Christian writer that really has really influenced me in my thinking on this, and he's nailed it, is Tim Keller. I'm going to read you a quote from Tim Keller from his book, Counterfeit Gods. Listen in. He's going to say this. It's on the screen behind me. It says, a counterfeit God, is what he talks about, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. An idol or a counterfeit God has a, such a controlling position in your heart that you spend most of your passions, most of your energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family, children, career, making money, achievement, critical acclaim, saving face or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, or your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue or even success in the Christian ministry. An idol or a god is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I, get, if I have that, then I'll feel that my life has meaning. Then I know I have value. and Then I feel significant and secure. We as humans have this amazing knack of taking gifts from God and uh, turning them into gods themselves we sacrifice for them and we spend our energy on them and what happens what happened, happened is they consume us they consume us Now you can be sitting there thinking yeah okay look I, I, I get that in theory but that's not me and that's not our world we live in but let me push a little deeper because I think this is really important because when we turn gifts into gods there can be disastrous consequences and I want to show you some of those right? It's a bit full on but I'm going to show you this this is another. Uh, this is how the, the writer Tim Keller opens his book, Counterfeit Gods. Can you bring on the screen for me, back? The next one. It says this: After the global f- economic financial crisis began in mid 2008, there followed a string of tr- a tragic string of suicides of formerly wealthy and well-connected individuals. The acting chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, the ho- the Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, hung himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Good, uh, a leading US real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the Willie's Red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many, Euro- uh, many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost 1.4 billion of his client's money in the Bertie Madoff Ponzi scheme slit his wrist and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive. Uh, with HSBC Bank, hanged himself in his wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. When a Baron Stearns executive learned that he would no longer be hired for J.P. Morgan Chase, which had bought his collapsed uh, firm, he took a drug overdose and leapt from the 29th floor of his office building. A friend said, this Bear Stearns thing, it broke his spirit. Tim Keller writes, When you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or your God that you worship, when all hope is gone and there's no alternative source to turn to, it breaks your spirit. Today as we look at chapters 5 and 6 of Ecclesiastes, we're going to hear the writer, we're going to hear God speak on money and wealth and possessions. And I love that this book was written so long ago, but it has so much to say to us right now in our culture. So, so relevant. We come and we live in a world where this is so relevant. Surely one of our culture's gods we worship is wealth and possessions, right? Pursuing wealth and money and stuff consumes and grabs hold of so many of our hearts in different ways, whether we have lots of money or whether we don't. We live in a time where how we view ourselves is in direct correlation to how much stuff or money or possessions we have. Or where we live, we judge others by these principles, you know, if someone says to you, you ask them where they live, you are you, you, many bringing judgment on them for where they live or where they grew up. Whether well, they grew up in a nice suburb or, or they grew up in a suburb that's not very nice at all. And we judge them very quickly compared to their, their social st- uh, they, We relate their, their money with their social status in our minds. We draw conclusions. In our culture, money, wealth, possessions is closely tied and linked to social status, how, you, how successful you are, and how you are perceived. Wealth now is tied to our happiness. The more I get, well, I'm told this, the more I get, the happier I am and the easier life will be. I just need to get there. I just need to get more. If I, have a, if I just have a little more, everything will be okay. Then I'll feel secure. If I just have that 20K or 50K in the bank just to support me, to be behind me, then I'll feel secure. My security is going to be in that. But if I don't have that, I've got to get that. And if that falls apart, then I'm in trouble because my God has failed me. We're told again and again to get more, to get more, to get more, to get more. And this will make you happy and content. So we believe it, we run, and we chase, and we work, and we sacrifice to this God. We've got to work harder, longer hours, better job, different career. Uh, 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 I need to get more. I just need more. And that's the culture that we live in. And money and wealth and possessions becomes our God. And Today, this book of Ecclesiastes has so much to say on this topic. And I want us to hear from the God of the, who loves us, who's the creator of all things. I want to see what he has to say on this issue. So we're going to jump into this. But if you're joining us here in Ecclesiastes series, we're doing a six-week series on this idea of how to live well in a confusing world. And for the past three weeks, uh, we've been looking at this book, and we've seen at first glance this book seems quite pessimistic, quite negative. The book opens with the teacher up front just saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Well, okay, negative Nancy, slow down. You know, like what's happening there? But it's like that, isn't it? So meaningless. But if, if we've if we talked about this a little bit, the word meaningless here is havel in the Hebrew. And so this, this word havel doesn't mean just meaningless. It's more like vanity, vapor, smoke, fleeting is the idea that this writer's trying to say. So meaningless doesn't really capture it. And this word havel is used 38 times in just 12 chapters. So the writer's really banging away at this. And it seems like this teacher is trying to say that life is fleeting, it is tempering. If you're trying to grab onto life and things of this life, they will just slip through your fingers. You can't, it's like trying to grab smoke. You can see it, but you can't grab it. And if you spend your life trying to grab it, you are going to miss out big time. This is what this teacher is trying to say. He's saying life full of beauty and gifts, but it's also full of pain and hurt. We, we, we saw season, uh, chapter 3, there are seasons of ups and there are downs, and we can't control them. Life is confusing. It's unpredictable. It's a chasing after the wind. So what's this book trying to say? What's God trying to say? Well, I think he's trying to say the main thrust of this book is if we try to pursue meaning and purpose apart from God, we will fail. We will be hurt. There will be consequences for that. So, what the main thrust of the book is saying. And this book is made up of this teacher some say it's solemn. We don't know exactly who it is. This teacher has lived this life. And they're, and they're almost riding on the, close to their deathbed and saying, look at my experience. Look what I've done. I've pursued this, 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 and this. And i want to tell you about that. And he speaks of pursuing uh, wisdom and wealth and money and pleasure and social status and pursuing gain. Gain after gain apart from God. And he says, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. It's all vapor. And the teacher shares his experience. And he shows how to walk through these parts of life, uh, showing that these, these, these gifts that we have are gifts not to be pursued and held on to tightly. They're good gifts to be enjoyed, but they're not to be built our lives upon. If we step back even a, a bigger step, we say this book is from God, the loving God who loves you so much, and he's trying to tell you how to live in this confusing world, to live for him. He's saying these are gifts, but they're not to be build your life upon. They're to be enjoyed and giving thanks to me, but not to build your life upon. Hold them with an open hand, knowing that you're out of control and I will give as I decide to give. But enjoy them, knowing that I am the Lord of all. We get this idea that he calls us to live in each moment to be present. And the book ends on the very, very last sentence, talks about this idea of judgment. We think, oh, judgment, that's pretty full on. But it says he's going to bring justice. This idea of havel, of vanity, of confusion will end. And so this life is not just the end. There's more to come where justice will come and a day will come and we're to live in light of that reality that we can enjoy gifts from God knowing that there is more to come. We're to live in light of that. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is saying. And I want to set that up because I think that fits really nicely into looking at money and wealth and possessions that we should hold them with an open hand. But I'm going to jump into this. Um, chapter 5, sentence 10 to 12 on the screen behind me. Let me read this for you. And it says this, it says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat with you. And what advantage has their owner but to see in them his own eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, but when he eats little or whether he eats little or much, but the, the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. These chapters 5 and 6, we're going to hear the teacher give three warnings. Three warnings to not pursuing wealth and possessions as your God. Let me look at show you number one. So what we just read there. Can you keep that up on the screen for me, Bec? You Can put that slide up, 10 to 12? Thanks so much. Instead, it's 10. The teacher says exactly what he's experienced. If you love money, it will never be enough. Maybe makes me think of someone who's addicted to drugs or alcohol. They can never get enough. It will never, it will never suffice. They're addicted to it. When, when, when whoever loves worth, he says, is never satisfied with their income, money is incapable of satisfying the hunger of the person who is devoted to it. When you get more possessions, the teacher says, you get more so-called friends who then you've got to buy things for and look after. And so you don't actually end up enjoying the money because you're just giving away to other people now. They enjoy it, but you don't. And the teacher compares the world of the labourer versus the world of the owner. He says the labourer works hard, does his seven till three. But then he goes home after three o'clock. He doesn't think about work anymore. He's sleeping easy at night. Whether he eats much or not, he's having a nice sleep. He compares it to the world of the owner, who has, may have a full stomach, but he's stressed out and he can't sleep because he's too worried. He's too full of his stuff. And he's too worried about his business. And he cannot sleep. He cannot get rest. He's comparing these two people. Peter moves on to the second warning, sentences 13 to 17. On the next screen for you, Beck. It says this, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to their hurt, or to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has left nothing in his hand. And he comes from his mother's womb. Uh, as he comes from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. See here, the teacher calls this not a warning, but a grievous evil. He says, this hoarding of riches harms the one who hoards. One bad investment, and it's gone. All gone. Like that. Storing up wealth for year after year after year makes one bad decision, and bam, it's all gone. God fails him. Then it says nothing's left for his kids. No inheritance for them. Nothing to pass on. Nothing to show for all their toil. Even says naked they come into the world and naked they leave with nothing to show. All these years of working and slaving and trying to gain and gain and gain and gain and then poof, it's gone. Nothing to show for that. After losing, it says at the very end of 17, after losing all he has, he's angry. He is frustrated and he is discouraged thinking about what could have been and what should have been and what I should have done and there's guilt and there's shame and there's anger and there's frustration. And he just feel let down by the God of money. It's Feeling not that dissimilar to what we just read about the, those, uh, those men who tragically committed suicide in the global financial crisis, is it? Third and final warning. Uh, chapter 6, sentence 1 to 6 on the screen behind me again. I'm going to read it for you. Next slide. It says... Um, uh, this is an evil that I have seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind. A man who God gives wealth, uh, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions and honor, so he lacks nothing of all uh, of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, a grievous evil. If a if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he, is, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness his name is covered. Moreover, it, is not, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Again, this teacher is saying, what's the point of wealth? What's the point of gain? What's the point of striving after possession if you can't enjoy it? And worse, someone else gets to enjoy it rather than you. They're all enjoying all all of their hard work and and, and getting all the stuff and enjoying their their possessions. But the person who got them isn't enjoying them at all. What a waste. Well, as he puts it, what a grievous evil. He even says, uh, what use is there? There's no contentment in the stuff they've got. No benefit at all. People who don't even see the light of day are better off. Even uses this really graphic image. I think it's supposed to try and shake you up. It's saying a stillborn child is better off than this person. You think, whoa, that's, that's confronting. But he's saying there that the stillborn child who, does, who is born, who has given birth, and that the baby is not alive, he's saying that baby is better off than the person who slaves away for so many years and doesn't enjoy their stuff. They have more rest than the person who chases after things and does not enjoy them. Even if they live for a thousand years, they're not going to find contentment. So what's the point? So what's the point? We can read all this. These are the warnings of the teacher. This pursuit of money and wealth. You we can think, okay, well, what am I supposed to do then? Just not have money, not use money, not have wealth, you know, sell all I have and then just go and live in a commune in Byron. I don't know. Um, like, what, you know, what should I, what should I do? What, is, is, is money evil? Is wealth wrong? Is possessions wrong? Is that what this book is saying? What does Ecclesiastes say? Well, in life, as I've shared with you many times, um, life goes through seasons, as you know, and in my life, I go through many seasons, as we all do. And uh, in those seasons, I often try and think about, and my Bible college lecturer, my principal, told me, one of the best things to do when you go through seasons is ask the question, what is God teaching you? Uh, I believe God is sovereign. The Bible says that, that he's intimately sovereign. My mum uh, used to pray for car spots in the shopping center, which I love. I love that, right? Because God is sovereign. He's always sovereign over car spots. Cool. Uh, and I love that. But God is sovereign over, over everything. In, in, he's intimate in my life. And so often I have to ask the question, uh, what is God teaching me? Now, a little while ago, as I've told you many a time, I was um, I went through a, quite a bad period of anxiety, out for three months, um, found it hard to leave the house, and I struggled this season and came to the other side and I asked this question, what is God teaching me? What is he teaching me? And here's just one thing that I learned. To enjoy each and every moment that I'm in. To be as present as I can in each moment and enjoy that moment for what I've been given. To look around and be present and to enjoy it. That is not my personality. My personality is so much a doer, to go forward, to keep achieving, to strive, to jump the next hurdle, to do the next thing, the next challenge. I love that. I love a challenge, and I want to take it on. But I think my anxiety, God was saying, just be still and know who I am. And uh, I know someone often says to me, hey, how how was your week, and and, and, uh, how you been? I often think about, that's last week. I'm looking forward to this week now. that's, That's in the past. I don't think about last week. I'm just going forward all the time. And that's my challenge. But what I've been learning is that God causes me to stop and to be thankful for what I have right now. Not the goal in front of me. I think I learned that through my anxiety was a lot over the future and what was coming and I couldn't control that. I had no control of the future. And that, that being out of control caused my anxiety to rise because I was thinking about well, the worst possible case scenario then I would play that emotion back into my life. And so what I learned to do was saying, no, I can't worry about that because that's out of control and that's in God's hands. I've just got to be present and be thankful for right now and right here and be more in the moment. So now what I try and I can do things like um, the other day, I can sit in the lounge with my daughter, my four-year-old little girl, Savvy, and uh, we can watch Peppa Pig together and I can hug her and be thankful for that moment and glorify God in that moment because God is good in that moment. He's giving me a daughter to hug. He's given me a TV. He's given me a lounge to sit on and I can enjoy God in that. I don't need to sit there and critique Peppa Pig and saying, why did she never get older? <laughs> and when will she ever grow up and why did she have an annoying voice? I don't have to do that, right? I don't have to do that. I can just be present in that moment and be thankful saying, God, you are good in this moment. That's what I can do. And I think this is what the, the teacher of the Ecclesiastes is saying here about money and wealth and possessions. Let me show you sentence nine on the screen. I'm going to try to explain it for you. Sentence nine, next slide, it says this. Better is the sight... Of the eyes and the wandering of the appetite. Now he often speaks in Yoda, so I'll get it for in a second, right? This is also vanity, striving after the wind. He's saying here, enjoy what you see, what you have in front of you right now, rather than the wandering of your appetite for more and for more gain. Be thankful for what you have right now. Be content in what God has given you. Don't just dream at what nice things you might have because you may never get them. And when you dream, you forget what's here and now. And so you're chasing after more in the future. But God is saying, look what I've given you. I say, like, no, 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 I want the future, please. And you aren't thankful for that. And you are chasing after the wind that says you might not even get it anyway. So you spend your life not being content with what you already got. Look at Genesis 18 to 20, chapter 5. And This pulls it out more on the screen behind you. It says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with his joy in his heart. The teacher says here, in all his wisdom and experience and his life, he says, it's good to enjoy what God's given you. He says, life is short. Life is short. You're not, promised. You're, not, you're not promised even tomorrow. But life is short. You have no idea what's in the corner. Therefore, enjoy and be content with the gifts you have right now in front of you. He even says it's God who gives wealth, it's God who gives possessions, it's God who gives money. So pursuing that, gaining after that, having your whole life about that is pointless because God is the gift giver of wealth and possessions and money. Trust him with that. The teacher says the people who are most content are those who are just in the moment enjoying what God has given them. And he says they are so busy enjoying the moment, what God has given them, They don't even think about what is behind or what is in the the future. They're just present in the moment, enjoying. They can enjoy the gift of money and possessions and wealth that God has given them, if he has. And then he may take it away tomorrow. Be present and enjoy the gift, not for gain. That's the conclusion of the teacher here. Enjoy the gift that God has given you like money. Worshipping him alone. Now, I could finish it up there. But I always have more to say. You're thinking, "Oh, a good one, a short one, Gav. Let's <laughs> let's go. Whew. Thanks so much. Wrong. I'm going to get going. I don't think I'd be doing my job as a past if I did that, because think there's more to push on in this section, right? Sorry, James. Anyway, uh, you see, it's, you see, I've got to give you a long one. It's last of them. I've got to bring it home for you, dude. Uh, you see, in Ecclesiastes right, money is a great gift from God, but it's a, a great gift, but it's, it makes a terrible God, a terrible God to worship. And as I said, we live in a world where so many of us worship the God of money and possessions for a number of reasons, and I think the worshipping the gift of, of, of worshipping the God of money is really hard for us to see in our own selves, because we are not only encouraged to do it, we are abnormal if we don't do that in our, in our society and our time. We will stand out hugely. If we just get a job and don't want to climb the ladder, if we just get a job that no one really thinks is, is great, if we just stay in that feeling, what's wrong with you? Well, why wouldn't you be pursuing more? To get more, to gain a house. If we want to buy a house. We're like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you buy a house? We look, we look down upon. So, what do we do if, if we realize in ourselves there's this issue with idolizing, worshipping this God of money? or greed, or whatever it is, or I can. that applies to any idol in your life, what do we do if we have this thing in our lives, it could be relationships, or family, or friends, or career, or status, or whatever it is, what do we do if we have this in our lives? And I think we need to go deeper. And I think the story that Jesus tells nails it. And I want to take you to the New Testament, I want to take you to the story, which you'd all know, the story of Zacchaeus, or the story of Zach, as we call him in our house, the story of Zach. Now, Zacchaeus was a man who um, who worked, he was a Jewish man, right? So he he worked in in that time, in Jesus' time, the Jewish people were oppressed by the Roman government. The Romans were looked after Jerusalem, and they had established their own government over the Jewish people, right? And so uh, Zacchaeus was a Jew, and what he did was, he was a tax collector, and he was super wealthy. He was super wealthy. He was loaded, in fact, and he worshipped. His money. And no one around him liked him. He was shunned from his community. And you can understand why. Because Zacchaeus not only took taxes off his own people, he then took a cut of his own to himself. So not only did he take taxes from the oppressed people, but he also took money on top of that for himself. And these people were already oppressed. You can see why everyone hated him. You can ask the question, why would a man like that, why would a man in his right mind who had any empathy or sympathy would do that and treat people like that? Well, because Zacchaeus worshipped money. He wanted to be wealthy more than anything. He sacrificed everything, relationships, kindness, empathy, just to get more money, more wealth, more stuff. And what's interesting is if you read the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, and you read through Luke's gospel again and again, the, the biggest, I think one of the biggest themes in Luke's gospel is Jesus' warning against greed. Again and again and again. The story of the rich young ruler had to choose between Jesus and money. The story of the rich fool who spent his time building bigger barns and then dies the next day. Jesus gives the story of the rich man in Lazarus and the rich man in hell because his heart showed who he followed by not looking after the poor. Jesus warned about how hard it is for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. He says it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus warns about the gaining of the whole world yet forfeiting your soul. And Jesus warns that you cannot serve two masters. What are they? God and what? Jesus could have to pick anything. God and... Fill the blank in. What does he choose? God and money. God and money. Jesus knows our hearts. He knows what we're like. This is why he puts the story of Zacchaeus at the end of Luke to show how to be freed from the slavery of false gods. I'm going to show you this. Everyone hates Zacchaeus. Jesus comes to town. And it's in Jericho. And uh, Zacchaeus lives there in Jericho, and he's keen to see Jesus. He's keen to see Jesus. And uh, in Jericho, uh, there are lots of people there lining the streets, but he's so short, and everyone would have hated him. No one let him through the crowd. So he thinks, how can I see Jesus? So he climbs a tree. And you think, "That's, that's a bit weird, and it is weird, especially in that culture. For a grown man to act like a child and climb a tree is just, he would be super disrespected for that. You don't act like a boy. You're a man. Don't climb a tree. You know, everyone already hated him enough. He didn't need any more ammunition against him. And so, uh, uh, but he did. He climbed the tree. And I think this climb of the tree shows his desperation. He he needs to see Jesus. He knows there's a big problem and he wants help. He needs Jesus. Jesus walks past the tree. Crowd is full of religious people. People who thought they were better than those sinners around them. Jesus gets to the tree and he stops. He looks up and he eyeballs Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus? One, he knows his name straight away. Therefore, he knows who he is. He knows what he's like. He knows his reputation. He knows that he's that he's a, a, a sinner who's a betrayer and lied. And he says, Zacchaeus, I want to come and hang out at your house and have dinner. Now you can imagine Zacchaeus is feeling that moment. He would have been over the moon. He wouldn't know what to say. He would have been nervous. But in this day, when someone says, I want to have dinner at your house, they're identifying with them and saying, I want to, I want to identify with you. I'm not ashamed of you. I actually, I want, I want to be, I want to be your friend. And I love it here that it's not Jesus, not Zacchaeus approached Jesus, but Jesus approached him. Jesus in um, Zacchaeus in all his mess and all his all his uh, wealth and all his greed, Jesus comes to him and seeks and finds him. And the cool last line in that is for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, which Zacchaeus was. And he came and found him. Zacchaeus didn't fix his life up. In all his greed, Jesus came to find him. And Zacchaeus knew he needed Jesus. He needed his grace. He needed his love. He needed his forgiveness. And Jesus found him and showed him that love. But I want to show you what happened after that. I think this is is the thing. I want to show you what happened after Zacchaeus met Jesus. This is sentence 8 to 10. It says this. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I, I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold, or times four. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Zacchaeus worshiped uh, money, then he came to worship the real God, and everything changed. It changed how he viewed and handled his money, it changed how, he, how greedy he was. He held his money with an open hand and wanted to love and to bless others. He he knew that life was no longer about stuff and wealth, but rather it was about Jesus. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, hey, Zacchaeus, give your stuff away. Hey, Zacchaeus, sell your things and now you know me. No. It was an overflow of knowing God's love and his grace and his acceptance that Zacchaeus goes, These things that I have now are nothing compared to what I have in Jesus. It's an overflow. For Zacchaeus' whole life, he'd been searching for meaning and purpose and happiness. He thought it would be wealth that would, would fulfill him. He thought it was stuff that would fulfill him. So much so that he rejected his whole community to pursue that God that just let him down. And he was left empty. And he was hated. And he was searching. Then Jesus found him. And he finally found what he was looking for his whole life. And Jesus freed him from the slavery of money and possessions and Jesus was more than enough for him. So much so that this money that he had that was his God now meant pretty much nothing to Zacchaeus. Because he found acceptance and grace in Jesus. Giving away all his money within half an hour, turned it right around. As soon as he met Jesus, like this money means nothing to me anymore, I can give it away. See, Zacchaeus found the secret to being content, Zacchaeus found the secret to happiness it was Jesus. Zacchaeus found true meaning, love, acceptance, and purpose. And it wasn't in money. It wasn't in career. It wasn't in family. It wasn't in status. And it wasn't in his looks. It wasn't in relationship. It wasn't in sex. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. Then after fighting Jesus, he could hold all these things of the world, these gifts like money with an open hand saying, I can use them. I can bless people. I can do whatever I want with them because I know uh, the most important thing in my life is Jesus. He's content. And if you're here this afternoon and you don't know Jesus, you don't know where you stand with him, he's coming here today and saying, I've come to find you. To free you from serving the gifts that I've given to you. And you're, you're worshipping them as God, your career, your job, you find your meaning, your purpose in that. He's saying, I'm freeing you from that. Because they will fall. He loves you so much. He died on the cross to seek and to save you, to give you life to the full. To give you freedom and joy and purpose. I want to say, come and, come and check this out. Come and check this Jesus guy out who gives life to the full. Don't be someone who lives in each world and half foot in each world who has one God here one God there. Jesus says, no, you can't, you can't serve two masters. It's me or no one. You choose. But I want to say, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, hear this warning: you, you cannot serve two masters. You know, how long has it been since you've stopped and reflected, for, uh, uh, reflected on all you have in Jesus? You are loved, you are known, You're cherished. You have a heavenly dad who is sovereign over all things. You have heaven as your home. You have a new church family. How long have you stopped and reflected all you have and been content in that? I want to say, let's be people at church that are so free, that are so content and satisfied in Jesus, that we can just hold things of this world openly. It can be a church that loves people, that is generous, that is kind, that is with our time, with our money, with our relationships, because we are so content in Jesus. And now the overflow of that, we will love others, and truly be a city light. We, I, want to be, I want us to be a church that we can say, poverty or riches, it doesn't matter, because I have Jesus. I'm going to invite the band up to lead us in singing praises to that God, to that King Jesus. But I want to give you time to reflect, to think about your life, to, to sit there, and to ponder on, are there false gods in your life that you need to prune now to pull out, to be content in Jesus more, and to, to focus on Him? Let me give you time now to do that, and then we'll sing in praises together.